If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Let's just start again. I've got uh, Parky on the big screen, and it's like a huge, big, looming Parky. It's even bigger than life size. Fascinating. I wonder which part of Let's Start, Let's Start Again you just ignored. <laughs> um, all right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this. It is Pilot Episodes, the podcast for the aviation enthusiasts. But don't worry, I won't be flying alone because I'll be joined by other enthusiasts. So we'll start, of course, with skin cream enthusiast Parky. How are you, mates? I'm good. Luckily, the first intro was a disaster, so I'm bracing myself for the skin cream intro, and I still don't really understand. Uh, well, you have a uh, muse about it. <laughs> Quite. Well, that Parky. won't be understood either, Dunk. Parky, if, if you could see the picture I'm seeing of your face, you'd understand why he talked about skin cream. Uh, well, uh, much like a tortoise, uh, Parky doesn't really do much in, um, in the winter months, so what have you been doing? A uh, bit, bit of DIY or something? <laughs> Tortoise, good. Yeah, uh, DIY, building a wall, another one. So, um, not, not the great deal that would really fit in with this podcast. How many walls do you need at your house? We, ah. we JB, this, this is an ongoing theme because even, you know, even how many years ago, six, seven years ago, when I was flying at Coningsby, yeah. could see we used Parky's wall as a uh, navigational feature because you can see it from space. Goodness me. Uh, where, where do you live, Parky? The Mexican border? <laughs> that is an exaggeration. My God. You can see it from a chippy at a thousand feet. But oh, wow. That's, the, that's uh, pretty good. The, yeah, big wall. Now, this is a uh, retaining wall for my oil tank. Wow. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, the voice you could hear previously was coffee carrying enthusiast, uh, enthusiast Godders. So, uh, God, so, Godders, tell me you've been doing some things other than building walls this last few weeks. A few admirals and generals, a cup of tea and coffee here or there. You know, that's Uh, been quite good. Um, What have I been doing? I've been doing all sorts of things. One that stands in the memory this week is uh, I was invited to New Zealand House for Waitangi Day. Oh, I saw this on your Twitter. Yeah, which is the uh, New Zealand National Day. It was utterly brilliant because New Zealand House... if you, uh, it's visible from Trafalgar Square because it's this 17-story, reasonably ugly. I think Prince Charles called it a carbuncle, um, in a, a, a view from uh, Buckingham Palace. 
that they've got the best view of any view in London at the top of this thing. Um, and they did a really good, the defense attache did a chat and then uh, they had this, uh, it was a Maori lawyer come up, um, talked a lot in Maori and then explained a, a huge amount about the history of New Zealand and the treaty that they, uh, uh, that they, uh, they did on Tangi Day up in Waitangi um, in North Island. Um, and then did the, uh, uh, I put it on Twitter, but uh, a brilliant hacker. I'll tell you what, JB, so in your other life of rugby enthusiast, uh, yeah. expert and podcaster, I don't know whether you've ever faced a hacker, but you saw that that was that was only sort of five guys and uh, and a, a couple of women doing. It's quite a thing. I can imagine it being a little bit scary with the All Blacks facing you doing a full hacker war dance. Well, um, I, it's going to get them fired up. I will say this. I have been pitch level, actually on the same pitch as... Um... All black, and can't, I can't remember his name now, uh, the, the massive number six, Jerome Kano, running straight towards me. Um, he was exactly that sort of ma- man. I can tell you right now, it, an intimidating presence. And uh, as much as I give the habit stick, you can what, you can listen to my other podcast for that one. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do appreciate it. It is, a, it is quite a sight. Yeah, honestly, it was amazing. And, and, you know, you can see... Uh, Whatever the troubles have been with, uh, um, you know, the sort of Maori and British culture over the years, everyone has embraced it now, you mm. know, and, and he called it a bicultural society. But the warrior side of the Maori is something that the, the New Zealand military have embraced, you know, the New Zealand army. And the, the, some people talk fantastic stories of, uh, you know, sort of Second World War and just bravery down to warrior spirit. Uh, so it was a brilliant night. Brilliant Excellent. Evening. Now, just whilst we're on New Zealand. Do they have Air Force at the moment? They used to fly um, A4s, did they not, back in the day? Old Australian yeah, they, A4s? Yeah, they yeah, did. They, they, they all of a sudden just quit the fast jets, didn't they? The A4s. They in did, about yeah. 2004, I'm thinking something like that, because it was an exchange. Was it a Jag guy who used to go? No, it was Finn. Finn, Finn. Finn was the last exchange. There you go. Yeah, so I think they bought the A4 off Australia and then sold it them back. That's what I think. Anyway, uh, no, I think that they had ex-US Navy A4s. Yeah, I so think. did they? I don't know. And, but the, those A4s are back flying in America again for a company called, I think it's Draken. You're, you're right, uh, they are. They are aggressive. Cause, yeah, because when I was uh, a couple of years ago flying with two squadron out at Nellis on green flag, these guys were the aggressors. And so they bought up a bunch of A4s from uh, uh, around the world. And so those New Zealand ones were were back flying again because they were they were pretty silly done up with a I think it was an APG sixty five you know an F sixteen radar in the front. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, I guess we uh, better introduce the third of our cadre, uh, resident snuff film enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that come from? <laughs> How are you? Are you man? I'm all right, yeah. I'm slightly, uh, you know, I could kind of work out right. We've got Parky's face with his skin cream. We've got <laughs> Gosney coffee, but now I'm I'm flummoxed. Well, come on, can you explain it? Look, um, if it needs to be if it needs to be explained, you haven't listened to enough of these podcasts. However, <laughs> what what I'm more interested in is what you've been doing for the last couple of weeks since we spoke last. Uh, now you've been meddling with Texans. I don't mean the people, I mean the aircraft. <laughs> a little bit of the people and That's a little bit he, of the aircraft. Yeah, he's yeah. down into text again. <laughs> They're building another wall just <laughs> against me. Those Texans, <laughs> <laughs> I got away with that one. 
Oh, uh, well. Um, yeah, I've been doing a bit of Texan ground school, which is uh, interesting. So the aeroplanes <clears throat> hopefully will fly soon. Can't really talk very much about that, I'm afraid. But fingers crossed they will. Uh, have you got a sim? The simulator? The simulator is... it works but it's not been um it's not been um ratified yes so, ratified or I'm, I'm, I'm amazed actually that you've asked that question goddess because uh for me just just an outsider i always think something like a texan is there and tell me if i'm wrong it's there to train pilots yes yes so are you are you doing pre-training training then using simulators and is that what you do with other models of aircraft uh, yeah. So, yeah, the, uh, I mean, the way that we we do it on all of the modern platforms now is pretty much the guys learn far more than we used to. But simulators didn't have such high fidelity. They they learn how to, you know, fly the aircraft, land it, take it off, land it and, you know, fly a bit in the middle in the simulator. So actually, when they get to the real aircraft, they've you know, they've done it a fair amount. And there is a difference when you get in the real real aircraft as we've spoken about in podcasts before and the sort of the fear factor and um other uh psychological factors that sort of uh, that, that come into play but they're far better prepared now than they they were or we were i suppose back in the day excellent uh, yeah i'm pretty confident that i could fly an a380 now yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've seen you do it you can yeah, yeah. Uh, well i mean i got some poor instruction on the on on the last landing but that, it, it, it yeah. went it, it went swimmingly uh yeah. now we're podcasting on a rather i'm surprised you haven't been given a job yet actually jb <laughs> i, I be like be patient as you clattered into the cockpit they thought actually there's no way we, <laughs> it's not your flying ability it's just getting in and out that's well yeah it's, it's sort of public watching the pilot clatter into his seat knocking you know knocking things <laughs> everywhere it's just not a good look is it <laughs> trailing toilet roll behind you <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I was going to say we're podcasting on our special week, but I don't suppose it is special. I guess, uh, well, a, a bit sad because the tornado has finally retired, right? Yeah. From operations. So yeah. it's not quite retired just yet. Okay. But, but the, the last three came back from Cyprus this week uh, and landed back at Marham. So, yeah, that's the end of, I think, continuous operations since 1991 for the tornado. Is that right? Been... It is an, yeah, unbelievable. It's got to be almost a record, isn't it? Well, I, I tell you a record which really stood out to me uh, because it's all—it's been all over social media um, uh, and whatnot. There is a there is a guy now, Porky. You've got a lot of hours in fast jets. There's a guy who's got six thousand hours as a navigator in Tornado, which is just astounding. Yeah, you only have to sit in the back though, don't they? To be honest, he's oh. walking past. It's like, just right. alien. Oh, Ooh, crikey! Come on. <laughs> <laughs> really? Do you think that I wasn't hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. before? So you, you're just belittling Stratus's six thousand hours sat at the back of a tornado. He just had to say, didn't "Okay, yeah. should we get our special guest this evening?" To... <laughs> I always wondered how <laughs> Dunk ended up. Uh, I, I always wondered how Dunk ended up in single single seat aircraft. I think I know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, Parky, what's uh, you know? Clearly, we all know that I haven't got a thousand hours in any aeroplane. But um, what's what's your <laughs> high number? Is it on Hawks or? Uh, oh, um, yeah, it would be. Yeah, Hawks, fifteen hundred odd hours, I guess. Sixteen hundred hours, maybe something like that. 
Don't get you up. That is ridiculous. That is unbelievable amount of hours in the back of a GR. It's amazing. Doing all the work as well. I can so I can say this. Um, having done a few sims in the front seat uh, up at Lossiemouth, I never flew in the front seat. But it is the navigator that does everything. It's flipping brilliant. I wished I'd uh, I wished I'd gone two seat a lot earlier in my life. It's so, a lot easier. But so was changed. The, is the F three single seat? Or was it was it two seat? The F three was uh, like the GR four was uh, two seats, and um, you know it just had a different role. But I mean, I can remember I was checked out of the back seat, and on one exercise, I had to fly. The boys were flying with the the Darth Vader kit, the AR five, so you know the sort of full chemical weapon stuff. So you had to have wow. a a guy that was qualified in the back in case this thing sort of steamed up and you could take over. So I remember. Parky, Parky, Parky can I just interject there? Where it, the the chemical protection stuff, not the chemical weapons stuff. Remember, it's the ba- <laughs> it, it's the bad guys that do that. Uh, <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> but but the I can remember just having to scramble. He's very in picky this tonight, isn't he? Yes, he is. I knew what you meant, Parky. The chemical weapon stuff. I was in the back seat of this thing, JB, and it was a sort of scramble, and I had to kind of write it down and do some typing and get the inertial nav sorted and do the radios and get airborne. And then obviously operate the radar. And I just worked my knackers off. I wasn't that for the tactical bit and operating the radar in the back. And it was it was brutal. And, you know, you're just sort of sitting there and you've got some bloke throwing this jet around so you don't, it's just unpleasant, to be honest. I couldn't wait till we landed off that sortie. Wow. Was... Did you have one one navigator or one, I, 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 maybe that's not the term, but one guy that you flew with predominantly throughout your throughout your career? Or do you rotate or how does it work? Yes, the programme was written, you flew pretty much with, you know, anybody, I guess, on the squadron. You, know, you had the more junior guys would fly with the more senior pilots, you know, more often than not. If you did ops, you would be crewed up with somebody... If you did big exercises, you would as well. You know, the Falklands, you'd fly with the same same bloke. So, you know, but day-to-day on the squadron, you know, it'd be sort of hit miss who you flew with. And what kind of information do they give you? Well, it depends on the role. You know, in the, the Tornado F3, they were operating the radar, which I guess they're kind of doing in the backseat of the uh, of the ground attack, the GR4. You know, but uh, it's really the weapon system, so they do a lot in terms of the... I guess they operate the pond, you know, and uh, all of that stuff is done from the backseat goddess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, the, the sims when, when that I... Delivery, a lot, you know, a lot of it is from the backseat. Yeah, the, sim, the sims that I did, um, the guys are entering all the weapons data in the back, um, sorting out the targets. Uh, you're essentially in the front, um, you know, accepting the targets. Uh, you can bring certain bits of information uh, up in the front um, but, uh, I mean, clearly there were, with me, a, an inexperienced guy in the front seat of this in the simulator, not having gone through the, the conversion course, they are probably doing more than they normally would because it's, I mean, Parky, I guess if you flew with a good nav, um, you know, it's probably quite an easy thing when you, uh, you know, sort of understood what each other was going to do. It was probably quite easy to fly around the place and took a lot of pressure yeah. off you and you took a lot of pressure off him or her. Interesting. Yeah. I th- Exactly. You know, when you crewed up with a good guy, it was great. I really enjoyed flying with, uh, you know, F4 and F3. Um, it was, I think that those aircraft were designed for it. You know, they were sort of the weeks in the cockpit and the workload. You know, it was it was designed for two-seat operations. And, uh, you know, 
yeah, at times you'll remember in the typhoon, yeah, you could be working pretty hard when it, you know, when it gets busy in there. But, um, you know, I guess the the is designed in, you know, to, to do everything. But uh, every now and again, a second pair of eyes and a second brain, you know, it's it's uh, it was useful in my brain. So who is in charge of the aircraft itself? Is that always the pilot? Yeah, I'm trying to think now. This is a very good question. So the aircraft captain, you would always sign for the jet, yeah, and you would be the aircraft captain, but the authoriser, so somebody would authorise the sortie, and that could actually be the bloke on the ground, bizarrely, behind the desk, but the auth would generally be the most sort of senior guy and the leader of that formation. So that could often be, you know, the navigator would be the, uh, we call it the authoriser of that trip. Oh, so that's, so that, that's quite a strange thing. So, uh, I mean, that's probably worth explaining, JB, is when, so when you brief a sortie, you know, either if you're flying on your own or you're flying with a four ship or you're flying with an eight ship, there is a qualification that someone has on the squadron that will authorize that. So basically they are saying that you've briefed, you've done every, all the mission planning um, and uh, they are experienced enough to understand you've done everything well and you're cleared to go out the door. Now, clearly you can self-authorize once you get to a certain point. Oh. So as an example, when I was a station commander, I was the only one that could authorize certain things, you know, like a, a, a diamond nine formation, you know, that sort of stuff. So, you, so people had to explain to you how they were briefing it. Um, you'd sit on the brief sometimes, uh, or, or um, you'd listen to what they were, what their plan was. And when they got to the desk, so you'd run through an out brief. So you'd all get kitted up, go to a uh, the authorizing desk on the squadron and whoever was behind the desk or the authorizing officer would run through this big long checklist to make sure you'd done everything you check the weather you check the uh, the notams the notice to airmen all of these sorts of things you know final little checks you go and sign for the airplane and and off you go so someone has authorized the trip and then all the captains then sign another uh, another line saying that they'll comply with those orders so um it's not as simple as just find an airplane and go flying no, I, I, I bet not. Now, I imagine that you've done lots of work with Tornado in in the past. You've been a Harrier guy. Just tell me a little bit about the capability of the Tornado and what would that do which the Harrier couldn't and vice versa? How would the two aircraft in, interact when they were both serving along alongside each other? Well, sort of back in the day when we, we were sort of, we would do uh, cameos and things like that, they get they get tossed against different stuff. They would have their own weapons effect. And to be honest, you wouldn't really be looking too much into what they were doing. You would know perhaps where their, you know, where their weapons were, uh, were being sent. Um, but, uh, you know, the things that, uh, that Tornado could do that, that Harrier couldn't um, really, and, and I think probably Harrier's downfall was down uh, to Storm Shadow, I, I think, you know, the ability for it to carry and deliver that. Um so I think to answer your question, sort of day on day, you didn't sort of have a, a working knowledge of how Tornado worked and what it did. Mm. The way that we would plan things, um, because it wouldn't just be Harriers and Tornadoes, there are all sorts of different all different nations. They all delivered different effect. And so the mission commander on what we called a combined air operation or a Cameo that would have he would be told right this is the effect that we want and then he would use his weapon systems try and provide that effect with using you know other weapon systems such as air defense fighters to defend those systems and go against um uh, so the suppression of enemy air defenses would happen to try and take out surface to air missiles it's a huge big complicated picture uh, and 
the real nitty gritty of how the different weapon systems worked, I, I would say, wasn't really uh, it wasn't really required by anyone but the mission commander who did need to know, you know, what each platform could do, what they could carry, how many and therefore, you know, what systems he could either take out and what weapons he could put onto each individual target. So uh, it, it sort of all came together through that that mission commander, I would say. Goddard, what do you think? To yeah, I'd go along with the fact that um, it, we used to do these, so the big combined exercises in the UK you would all plan together. So that's when you, so the weapons instructor courses that we do. So you'd have to understand how to integrate particular capabilities into uh, into the formations, because that's all about becoming a mission commander. So understanding this this huge level of, uh, of different types of aircraft and capabilities and uh, how you put them together. I mean, I operated with Tornado closely a couple of times when we were doing Libya in, in 2011. Uh, we did end up flying mixed formations with the, I was the chief of staff down at Jor del Col where we were flying out of. And there were mixed formations there because Typhoon could provide, you know, had the radar, had Link 16, had a bunch of capabilities that could protect oh. Tornado. Tornado had a wider suite of weapons available to it, one of them being Brimstone, which Typhoon now has. And Brimstone um an amazing bit of kit actually that uh, you know this uh, i wasn't a fan earlier on in the day because this thing was designed a sort of cold war design so you'd loose off this um this small little um derivative of a hellfire missile um it had a millimetric wave radar in the front um and it, it had an autonomous mode where you could give it a search pattern it off it'd go and it'd look for tank shaped objects it had its own little library in it and go yeah, that looks like a tank. Check in the library. Definitely is a tank, not a school bus, <laughs> and uh, and go for it. So I always wondered how we were going to use that in the modern day with rules of engagement. But MBDA, who built it, added uh, a dual <clears> mode to <throat> it, and they put a laser receiver in there. And one particular night in Libya, I saw the guys come back, and tornado and this tornado had uh, there was a T seventy two tank causing havoc down this street you know so a bunch of civilians um uh, uh, around so you can't drop a big bomb in that because clearly you do not want any collateral damage you know you don't want to kill any civilians or any of that sort of stuff so a lot of the um big bombs were out so the the, the only thing that was actually cleared to shoot in that particular night was a tornado which used a laser guided wow. brimstone and <clears throat> the shot went uh, literally up the street it's a fairly low yield warhead, um, hit the tank, disabled the tank, and you could still see, you know, it didn't affect any of the houses around or any of that sort of stuff. So was a really low collateral weapon that was, um, you know, sort of perfect precision, you know, sort of taking that tank out in the middle of the street. So Brimstone from then on became the sort of weapon of choice doing close air support. And it's only recently in the last few months that Typhoon has got that capability, which has been, you know, has allowed Tornado to de to then retire. So there's a lot of cap uh, there's a lot of sort of complementary. You know, another reason Typhoon flew with Tornado as well was the electronic warfare detection system on Typhoon is so good that it could differentiate between certain things that maybe Tornadoes couldn't at oh, the wow. time. So, um, you know, there was a, there was a bunch of different reasons, but it was really successful when we did the sort of uh, the dual fighter operations. That is very interesting. Um, don't mean to be that, that, that a, not a missile. It's a range of missiles. 
So the, uh, the other thing, JB, I think as well is it was an incredibly close decision between which aircraft they they took out of service. You know, it was. I think it even changed the decision, you know, a couple of times as to was it going to be the Harrier, was it going to be the Tornado? Because they, you know, there were plus and minuses, I guess. But it was, it really, it went to the wire, didn't it? Between which was going to, uh, you know, go out of service. Eventually, the Harrier. It was quite short notice, wasn't it, Dunk? You know, you boys were, you were just waiting, weren't you, to to find out which it was? And suddenly, Harrier was gone, and six months later, that was it. Yeah, I I can't remember if we banged on about this before, but. I was bizarrely in the I was on the ops desk. I can remember it's one of those things that, you you know, you have a, a, a snapshot in your mind. And I was uh, the auth on the desk uh, that day. It was a beautiful blue sky. And the, the first wave I'd outbriefed all of them. They were all walking out to the aeroplanes uh, and uh, the phone. And it's the uh, it was the Ford commander um, who was uh, I think it was Air Commodore Waterfall. Might have been group captain. Can't remember. But uh, he was a Ford commander anyway that time. And uh, he said, Duncan, they've got, um, they got airborne in the first wave yet. I said, no, not yet. So they're just walking out now. Stop them. We're like, oh, miserable. Yeah. So that, you know, that was were you, it. That were was... you not tempted to tell us a little porky so the boys could get in the air yeah, one final like, time? Sorry, I, I can't, can't <laughs> hear what you said. <laughs> Send them flying. Okay. <laughs> get them all up in the air. All right, then. Uh, yeah, because I might fly a little differently if you knew that that was your last day in the aircraft. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, that is a uh, <laughs> exactly the auth on the uh, on the radio. Right, boys, it's your last one. Make the most of it. <laughs> <laughs> Make it count. Uh, yeah, so um, it's probably best at that point to uh, to all sort of come back and take stock. Um, but yeah, of course, everyone then was that does. That last trip, Dunk, or then, or that was just no. What so what that? happened is that they then. Um, I mean, there was a huge amount of change. I was on the, uh, the operational conversion unit at the time. So that's where we train the students uh, who were coming out of Valley to, to become Harrier pilots. And um, they all, that's, they stopped that day. So from being on that course and, uh, you know, wherever they were in it, some were quite close to the end. Some oh. had just started. But all of those guys stopped flying. And, the, and, the, and Gary Waterfall at the time, he managed, which I, I thought was it was great, he managed to keep the aeroplane flying for an extra three months. And we went and did support to ops. So we'd go and support the Army uh, on Stanta range and, uh, and do close air support with those guys. So um, it wasn't like, right, that you're grounded and uh, and there is no more harrier flying it it had sort of almost a decompression period if you like where uh we did then uh still support to uh, support those guys on the ground um and then phase the aircraft out and they they did a um a 16 ship fly past uh for the uh on the final day of the of the jet which uh, i think the tornado is going to do as well uh so sorry i, I didn't I, I did know that story but i didn't realize what you were doing that day you were in charge of the conversion unit so there would be no point in sending those boys up to be fair well i wasn't in charge of the conversion unit i was just the author on the he desk. thought he was jb I always he thought always thought thinks in charge he is. of everything yeah exactly yeah exactly not <laughs> um, Pocky, don't tell him don't tell him it upsets him <laughs> starts twitching um yeah so uh, yeah there wouldn't have been much point um in uh, you know if it was a student sortie and everything was stopping as you say some of those sorties though you end up doing um you know go and do staff continuation training and things like that but i suppose if it was finishing there's no point in in continuing to train if the aircraft well, wasn't we had, we had the same sort of thing up at lobby um Froome. Uh, Paul Froome was the the boss on 15 Squadron, and it was 
uh, once the last gone through, the last weapons instruction course had gone through. That's essentially when everyone stopped flying because you've got no reason to keep flying. Yeah. But we're all, but so all that we did was keep the guys current who were then going to do the fly past for the last uh, for the parade on the last day. Um, uh, and then you know the thing gradually wound down, and that's it. Um, it was a sad day when the last tornado left um, Lossy because it was it was good having the two different forces up there. And one of the things I said to them at the time was, with Typhoon getting Storm Shadow and, Brims, uh, and Brimstone, that if the guys weren't roofing each other to each other, do stuff. We had some of the tornado guys coming over to Typhoon as well. Um, one of the tornado guys was going off to F-35. You know, the, there was a huge chance to to sort of um, learn off each other at that point, which was actually really good. Um, and uh, there the weren't many of our bases back in the day were multi-platform bases. Uh, we were lucky out of Larbrook. We had the helicopter guys out there, um, you know, which was uh, good to, uh, you know, chat with them, although they went an awful lot of the time. Um, but it was just a good thing. You know, where, uh, other times in Cyprus, when I've been co-located with uh, fighter controllers, that has been brilliant, that you can sit in and debrief with them, see exactly what they go to, go and sit in the radar cabins with them and see how it is to control. It's like Parky sitting in the back of an F3 and finding out what an app does for a living. You know, all of that stuff is really yeah, good but... to see see what other people do. I think what's interesting is that Parky was absolutely heads on fire in the back of that tornado. Completely yeah. capacity limited. Oh, what's well, going on? I mean, ser ser serious question then. I mean, obviously, yeah, there, obviously there's a lot of stuff to do in the back of a, back of a tornado, otherwise you wouldn't have someone there. Um, how do you cope in a, sing a single seat? Because Harrier is basically the same generation. Presumably you've got all the same work to do. Yeah, I, I um, it I mean, yeah, you do. You've got. I, I mean, uh, I guess. God, is, did you, you flew in tornado a bit, didn't you? Uh, I just a couple of trips I had in the backseat. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, do you know it is really difficult because it, I don't think you can compare apples with apples. That you know, the, the Harrier was. Um, you know, it had a lot of stuff that was provided to the pilot to enable him to do things single seat. I think probably the. It, it, it's probably fair to say that you needed to have, you know, more capacity than the guy flying the tornado because you were operating the whole system rather than just, you know, flying the aeroplane whilst, as as the boys have said, the the, the guy in the back did, uh, you know, the majority of the workload. So, um, but it, um, it, I think the systems within it, they're just designed differently such that, you know, I guess um, as as the aircraft were developed, those single seat systems were easier for a single pilot to operate. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that strikes me about the Tornado is the sheer amount of roles that it, that, that it occupied. Everyone thinks of the ground attack, but you had the reconnaissance variant, which was uh, top of its game for a long, long time. You had maritime strike version, and that's before you even get into, uh, you know, the... Um, and, the and then eventually the um, the, the interceptor version. Yeah, to me, it's a very good point. There are lots of versions in there. I remember the when the GR1A came out. You know, it had uh, didn't have one of the guns removed because it had a sideways looking infrared um, on uh, on both sides. It used to carry the uh, well, even right up until the end, carrying the Raptor pod, which was a you know a great necky pod um, that uh, uh, you know provided that sort of tactical recce. 
um, the EW side of it, the the suppression of, of enemy air defenses, siege, you know, which is all I did in the F-16 out in the uh, out in the states. Uh, the alarm, the the alarm missile. Uh, we using what was it? Harm harm missiles. Yeah, harm out in the states. The AGM-88, which is uh, a U.S. missile. The Germans use them on their ECR tornadoes. Their electronic. Um, uh, tornadoes we had a um, great missile actually called alarm you know which was one of these things that so if you wanted it so there's a, an enemy radar out there attached to a fire control system a, a surface to air missile and if you wanted to take it and fire one of these normally uh, an anti-radiation missile finds the beam of the radar and it basically sniffs it out and follows that beam all the way down to source and then blows up so you're taking out the uh, um uh, the dish or whatever is is providing the signal, but clearly you turn it off. There is no uh, yeah. um, signal. So the alarm used to put out a parachute in loiter mode and sit in its parachute, oh, wait, waiting for someone to twitch. And then if if someone twitched and turned it back on, it would snip the parachute um, and uh, and go back down. So um, it, it was yeah, it was a really good missile um, and a a great. Uh, role for Tornado to do. Did, did they used to call those missions Wild Weasel missions? Have I made that up? No, in the US they're, they're called Weasel. Some in the Brits, we never really called it that, but definitely I was a Wild Weasel out in the States when I was doing that particular job. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I, I seem to remember, I think the Israelis did the same sort of thing, but they did it with drones. They had rudimentary drones flying about. And as soon as they switched on the, switched on their radars, that's when they'd launch the, their, their home missiles. I was, um, I was on a red flag once, and there, there was uh, a big Israeli detachment there flying F-15s. And they had a bunch of it. So this was, I guess, maybe 2000 or so, 2000. And um, I was chatting to a couple of their fighter pilots in the bar, really interesting guys. Yeah. And I was talking to one of them about, you know, electronic warfare and that sort of stuff and how they do their training. And this guy told me uh, back in the day, so it was, uh, he was talking about the 80s. I forget what airplane he was flying, maybe the Skyhawk or something like that. He said you used to take the guys up and their sort of um, defense against SAM-6 mission, they'd hug along the border and hope that a SAM-6 was fired against them and then yeah. use their tactics to stop actually being hit by a real SAM-6 that was in the air. Crikey. <laughs> That is training. Yes. <laughs> it's a, it sounds rather nerve-wracking. Before I move on from Tornado, anyone else want to share any Tornado-related anecdotes before we talk about something else? What was the photo wing called, Parky? 67. 67-degree 67 yeah. wing. All photographs. The, the thing I can remember, the best thing about the Tornado was... And I think I've said this before, it was ridiculously quiet when you flew it. Yes. But it was the when you did 600 knots, every jet you do, you know, so you're trucking, you're doing, I don't know, whatever, 660 miles an hour, you're nearly supersonic, and you feel it in, you know, the Harrier would, well, it wouldn't go that fast, but, you know, if it did vertically, it would feel like it was falling apart probably. Whereas a tornado, it was mentally quiet and smooth, and you pop the wings back, and... I remember we always used to do sort of hundred foot breaks at six hundred knots on the display, and it would just make people jump. And you just—it was ridiculously good fun. But I can remember lining up at Blackpool, and Grigo did it to me, and I heard him sort of—he was joining, and it was—I wondered—I was on the runway, ready to get airborne. He was going to do a break, but he was downwind. I was then going to take off, 
And he came over the top of me at, I guess, 100 foot with the blowers in. And it would have been quiet in his cockpit. And I jumped out of my skin in my aircraft. The, just the noise, and it's just suddenly there. Such a fast bit of machinery at a low level. And this is where it wanted to be, to be honest. It was, uh... your, your skin's quite baggy, though, isn't it? So I suppose, you know, <laughs> jumping out of it wasn't too much of a problem. Oh, Parky, Parky, Parky. You've just made actually. Because you're not on Twitter... But Lego Parky is on Twitter. Yeah. Two things have just combined them. One is, who was the gentleman who got shot down in the in the Gulf War? John Nickel. John Nickel. John Nickel tweeted you uh, this week. At least he tweeted your Lego alter ego, saying that you actually flew together, which was yeah. quite nice. And the other thing which you missed on we've lost Parky. Oh dear. Well, the other thing that that you missed Parky was an amazing video of a tornado flyby. Did you see that? That was, a bell, that was a bell, wasn't it? Yeah, it was brilliant. Because the first one goes past, you think, oh, that's quite close. And then you see the guy in the tower craning his neck around like, that can't be another t- tornado. And then right past the tower. That's what it did well. It was, uh, you know, it's, it has served the RAF ridiculously well, that jet. Yeah. Well, it, it, was it um, originally TSR2 technology which went into it? I heard that. The, the, the TSR2 was went... That was actually binned, and we bought, or the RAF bought the Phantom. So they went off the shelf, you know, so that would have been sort of mid-60s, because the F-4 came in in 68. There may have been some technology in the sort of train-following radar, that sort of thing, that then, you know, when was the sort of first flight of Tornado? was sort of 70? 74. 74, there you go. So it wasn't that much after, you know, the F-4s were still, you know, pretty new that we were then jumping on board the, uh, you know, the the European Panavia Tornado at the time. Yeah. Uh, one last thing for you then, um, if anyone wants no, to... Just, uh, just, Go just a sec, Jack. Have you, have you ever seen the TSR-2? Um, there's one up at, uh, I think I mentioned it before, there's one up at uh, Cosford. There's one in Duxford it's too. Massive, isn't it? It's enormous. I it know. It looks like... It looks like a cross between a tornado and, yeah, there was an episode in Thunderbirds with some uh, yeah. uh, some big sort of cranked wing bomber that they had to roll the little Thunderbird on because it had lost an undercarriage. Oh, I do yeah, remember that. Exactly the one you mean. Exactly, yeah. exactly the one, yeah. And it, and it looks like one of these things. It's enormous. Um, and I think you're right. There was a ton of technology, not least the air brakes, which are in exactly the same place. Oh, are they? Uh, yeah, there's one in Duxford too, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, it is one of the largest, most scandalous bits of industrial sabotage ever to occur in the UK. But it is what it is. It's what nearly 50 years ago now. Yeah, let, it let it go, JB. Exactly right. Exactly right. Very, very, very wise words. Um, who's been watching the Red Arrows show thing, which is going on on, on Channel Five at the moment? Yeah, I watched an episode last night. It was the first one I'd seen. Uh, and what's the review? I thought it was good. I mean, I know a couple of the guys in there, obviously. Uh, Lingy, Perty, uh, the boss, and then uh, a couple of guys who were trying out. But, but boys, did, did it hockey? Yeah, I've seen a couple. Of, uh, was the one last night then on the shortlist of the boys joining? Yes, yes, it yeah. was, yeah. And I've still got to, got to see that one. But, uh, yeah, I saw sort of, you know, Lingy coming back in the team and... Uh, it's uh, it's great. I mean, it's just a trip down memory lane, you know, where they put their helmets in the briefing room and the same little 
magnetic hawks on the board. You know, you, it's just all those sort of weird stuff that you just kind of you just remember uh, it, it coming back. But it's, I've like I've enjoyed it. It's good, and you know, I think it's a it's a very watchable thing, isn't it? Because it's one of those we're going to do it. It's a nightmare. Oh, we've done it. Brilliant. You know, that's kind of what it's like most years. You know, you climb that mountain and uh, you put the show on. But uh, no, it's been good. What was what was the shortlist like for you, Dunk? What when I was there? Yeah. Can't believe we allowed him on. Yeah. Do you know, it's very, I think uh, we may have said this before, and it won't be surprising anyone, I would imagine. But, you know, when you're on the shortlist, there's always what you call a tough nut to crack. So one of the team that you always think, oh, flipping it, he's quite hard work. He clearly doesn't like me. He's a little bit aloof, a little bit, yeah, check me out. I'm quite a big deal around here. <laughs> for me, that guy was Paco. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have thought it, but yeah, Parker was a tough nut, nut to, to crack. I can't believe you let me on, Parky. Well, I done some navigation exams with Dunk. I don't know why we were doing those, Dunk, <laughs> but uh, we'd done some exams here. So I, I kind of knew Dunk pretty well. So I guess that was... He was uh, ignoring me. You just read me wrong, Dunk. You read me wrong. So, hang on. Have you all been on the Reds? God is hasn't. Oh, dear. I thought he you had a thousand... Busy getting promoted. Uh, I, yeah. thought... uh, I, I was too busy flying missions from uh, my exchange tour. I, I thought he had a thousand hours on the Reds. Uh, sorry. No, no, no. That's completely wrong. Well, no, no, God is yeah. I'd be well spreading a thousand. <laughs> uh, it's like a... Uh, you know, people touch the sort of Manchester United... Um, you know, uh, badge before they run out at uh, Old Trafford and stuff like that. You know, my lucky charm is not getting a thousand hours in any aeroplane. Exactly. You've done well. You yeah. are very well, lucky. So, so last night, so they had the, the, the shortlist. And I heard, you, know, you guys and various others talk about it. Is it always the same? A, you know, turn up, there's some sort of uh, um, social, there's a, uh, um, even though they were in Greece, they still seem to be doing the, uh, the go-karting. There's an interview and there's a flying test. Uh, is, has it been the same for a million years? They normally yeah. play golf as well. Did they play golf? Didn't see that bit. Ah. Well, I don't know. They, I mean, they might not anymore, but um, yeah, they, they used to play golf all the time. And oh. so, uh, yeah, there's, I, do you know, it's, it's, it's um, as good, I think, as you can get in a week in that, you know, you fly with people, you socialize with people, you, bo- you, you know, you go and look at uh, things that perhaps people wouldn't normally do. That might be golf or it might be go-karting. And so you put people in an environment where they're actually they're relatively uncomfortable because, the fact is, everyone knows it's a 24-hour-a-day interview for for six days or however long the board is there for. So, you know, you're always under the spotlight. So it's, you know, you always used to say you could tell someone who was feeling the pressure because, uh, you know, they'd they'd laugh even at things that weren't particularly funny. You know, they'd have a short list <laughs> laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, uh, you know, it was um, – it, it's quite a uh, – it, it, because there's that pressure on people, you kind of probably see as best you can uh, the, the true person, you know, when they're under pressure, they're a bit tired, they're flying three times a day doing, you know, it's quite, um, the flying's quite high pressure as well. So uh, you, you probably, you know, see, see the, uh, the real side of, uh, of those nine people on the shortlist and it gives a, uh, you a good indication of perhaps who you should select. All right, I've got a lot of questions now. So first of all, why does a pilot want to join the Reds? 
Well, you know, I guess the uh, everyone's slightly different. So some people um, join the Air Force wanting to join the Reds. That's what they've seen, and that's what they you know what they joined for. I I, I personally didn't. I I had no. I didn't even think uh, uh, that I wanted to join the Reds. So I was at Valley as an instructor, and there was the opportunity to fly with them. And you know, I was was uh, of the mindset. Well, you know, that's a tick in the box of life. Why not go and give it a go? And so. Um, you know, went and gave it a go. And when you fly, um, it's one thing watching the team from the outside and thinking, oh, they're but actually when you see the uh, the dynamics of the manoeuvring from inside the formation, it's even as, a, you know, a fast jet pilot that's used to manoeuvring fairly close to other aircraft, it is absolutely jaw-dropping. And um, so I saw that and thought, right, I want to apply to do that. So, you know, that, that's my story. I don't know, Parky, what was, what was your thoughts? I mean, yeah, it was one of those didn't think I stood a chance. Um, and I guess I was sort of saw them a fair bit when I was doing the F3 display and met a few of the boys. And like you, Dunk, I don't know if I managed to blag a trip, but um, the more I saw of it, the more it was just like, this is ridiculously fun, for want of a better word, flying. Just utterly what you can do with nine aircraft, you know, looping, rolling, the second half manoeuvres, it was just fantastic. And backseat trips, it was like, I just, if I could get a shout at doing that, you know, and a short list and, you know, nothing ventured, just give it a go. And, and really didn't think I stood a chance, but uh, it was, I think it's very, you know, I never really thought I, I stood a chance of getting in the Reds for the first 10 years, three tours. Like, it didn't even occur to me to apply for the Red Arrows. Wow. And I don't think I would have, hadn't you know got the solo display to be honest but uh you know some boys do a couple of couple of tours and you know apply immediately and and it's a funny thing as well you know at that sort of stage of your career you're probably i mean not not for me but most boys are going to get promoted and you know they're at that sort of window so for goddess you know when you got your exchange i guess you came back promoted and that was your window gone wasn't it you know you 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 weren't allowed to apply at that stage Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've taken that different path because um, when I was on the Harrier. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. Uh, I did, as Eurofighter 2000 was called at the time, um, I'd done the QI course and uh, I was desperate to go and fly something with a radar and I could see Typhoon coming in and I wanted to go and fly it. So I purposely, um, you know, all I'd ever put down on my sort of career annual forms and stuff like that was that I wanted to go on exchange and I was lucky enough to do it. So exactly that point, you know, uh, I went off, did that, came back and it was never an option, you know. So, so for me, I, had, I, I hadn't applied, I hadn't considered it. And then when I came back, it wasn't an option anyway. That's really interesting. So what's the profile of a pilot who is going to go into the Reds then? He's, well, at the time we had to have... 1500 hours which was generally you know still the same still the same that would be the the boys don't fly as much as you know we used to probably fly 250 hours a year so you know that would be sort of six years two two tours two good tours you probably had your sort of 1500 hours whereas you know now it's maybe you know three tours so nine years or so of flying but you know, by that time, you, you you know, a lot of guys are promoted and you, you I don't think oh, at the time you couldn't have been promoted and be selected for the Reds. And equally, sometimes they were short of, you know, weapons instructors. So it might be of Harrier boys and they'd only take one, you know, and there were two good guys that were, you know, wanted to be on the team. And there was a lot of you know, just people's careers were also in the timeline of their promotion, etc. Stop some really good guys, you know, not getting in. That's just how it was. Well, and, and how many guys would normally apply per year? And how long can you stay on the Reds for? I, I mean, I guess would it be sort of 20 or 30? I mean, that was, again, you know, there was a lot more options when Dunk and me were, you know, on the team. Um, but, you know, quite a few. And then they, they shortlist nine. Well, that's how it used to be. And then two years, there were three slots. One year, there was two. They've changed it a little bit. A couple of the guys have stayed on longer now. So there haven't been always the three slots. Um, there were sort of back in the day. Um, and in Germany, you would do three years. But again, that sort of varied a little bit. A couple of, you know, either through accidents or, you know, my, my case, you know, as we talked earlier, a guy called Jarvo got sick. So I came back and did fourth year but uh you know the, the norm is to do three years wow and do you still have your day job as well or are you pure reds yeah pure reds that's it you know the workload's actually it's, huge jb it's um you know that i mean it doesn't sound like much but flying three times a day every day um particularly when it's quite a steep learning curve because it's all maneuvers you've not done before a lot of it's high g stuff there's um <laughs> It, it it really you get to a Friday if you've flown three times I uh, three times a day you know for your five days then uh, you get to a Friday afternoon and you're absolutely shattered. So what, and what, when do you do your flying? Do you do it like before breakfast, then lunchtime one, and then afternoon tea? How's it? How, how's, how's that all fit in? It depends when you have breakfast, supposed to be. But I guess you know, in your profession, you can have breakfast whenever you want, can't you? It's about is it breakfast about eleven for you? Uh, well, if if I'm lucky, uh, and yeah. followed by a long brunch. Yeah. So <laughs> under those timings, yeah, we would probably fly before breakfast, and then uh, and then we would uh, we'd breakfast at ten. What was it? If, <laughs> it was normally like an eight thirty slot or something. You were flying first, yeah, wasn't so, it? So and it depends. The thing is, during the workup, JB, joking aside, is that the. Um, uh, actually, the, the the synchro and Jippo guys. So sorry, the um, uh, the Enid and Jippo guys. Enid are the front five. Jippo back four. Um, so you might have seven guys 
uh, training because you might have um, just the synchronizer. But you might have six slots a day. So you've got six flying slots. The first one might be at 8 o'clock takeoff, uh, and then it just uh, alternates throughout the, th throughout the day with guys, you know, jumping into different, uh, different uh, well, not doing they'll be in the same position, but it depends what you're training for, uh, which shapes you're training for as to whether you fly or you a lot. Wow. So and you've got to brief all those, and then you've got to debrief them all. Yeah, so it was, um, you know, it was just incredibly slick, the whole procedure. Um, you know, the, the briefing time was, uh, it, it started when I first joined, it was 30 minutes. You started for 90 minutes before nine aircraft took off, which is incredible when you can start them up and taxi out. And, you know, the brief would be about 10 minutes. You'd, uh, you know, there was no dawdling from then. You know, you'd uh, put your kit on. Uh, to the aircraft, back in, start up, nine hawks. You generally strap in with about a minute to spare. The hawk was so easy to start, you know, probably three minutes, nine aircraft, taxi out, six or seven minutes to taxi out, and then you'd always take off on time. And, you know, it was just slick. You know, equally, the debrief, you know, uh, after landing, one of the guys would get the tape ready to go. And, uh, you know, a couple of minutes after you took your jean suit off, you know, you'd all sit down, play the tape. And you do that sort of six times a day. We'll fly three times, dovetailing between, as Dunk says, you know, the uh, either synchro or or Jippo and Enid, and uh, and you know the day it was it was utterly brilliant and uh, and the most amazing experience. One of the things JB is, um, I mean, the boys have been a bit nonchalant about it there, but I remember speaking to Dunk when he was going through the uh, the workout uh, once he got into the team. And he was bloody miserable the whole time going, ah, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my time. Sorry, sorry. Duncan was miserable. It's difficult to leave. I've gone downhill since then. Oh, right, right, right. I guess, and you know, I get even at the end of your first year, Dunk, you were saying, oh, it's... It's so tricky, you know, The uh, I guess, because you're seeing displays at various places for the first time. You've got the you know, where you're the navigation leader or any of that sort of stuff, um, navigating on overseas tours and things like that. It was really interesting, you know, speaking to the boys who were in that, you know, you see on TV, oh, it's amazing, uh, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world, when actually these boys are, are absolutely working. Uh, the, the problem Dunk had was he was on the left-hand side and they would always bicker and fight and arm wrestle. a lot of bickering and fighting on the left-hand side. Uh, uh, was, that, was, that the, was that the debrief as to who'd, who was, uh, who'd done it wrong? Yeah, well, it was generally me. <laughs> I mean, it, it actually is, you know, if you do get a more vociferous character, you know, and I'm sure probably don't know somebody that was just maybe a bit more nibby. I, I can kind of recall, actually, it's all flooding back to me, the uh, the left hand side. But, you know, it, it could get you down a bit, you know, because, you, you know, you're doing your best. And uh, clearly, you know, the guys outside you are often even not for mating on you. You're in their peripheral vision and they'll just, you know, if you're up it, down it shallow deep you know they'll just give you a hard time and, and probably rightly so but it is you know it, it is it's hard work without yeah uh, that's difficult so really simple question for you all and uh we'll go around we'll start with godders then uh then dunk and then finish with parking really simple question reds are they the best display team in the world starting with me so as a um as an observer yes don't not having and that's not even having flown dunk 
yeah, yeah, I think they are. And to be honest, I think that, uh, you, you know, the, the display has continued uh, to improve. Uh, they call it the cyclone that they do now and they they, they bring um, uh, Enid round Crowdfront in the first half with um, eight and nine are, are spotting around it. So it's like the corkscrew park. Have you seen that one? It, the fact yeah, is, it, you, it, they, they just, you know, the, the the team continues to develop the display and continue to bring fresh stuff to it. And uh, so, yeah, I, I I think they are as well. I think uh, they continue to do a brilliant job. Parky? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things, you know, the country, we're definitely a nation where we, we think we'll lose at cricket and we slag off our trains and, and it's what we are. But the, there is some utter affection for the Red Arrows and, you know, the... the so many times I can remember this, you know, boys, you, you are, you know, we're so proud of the Reds and, you know, you, you have that, the, the history of the team, you know, they've been just, you know, essentially probably the, the best display team in the world. And, and I think the country thinks that and it is a real, it's quite a weight on your shoulders, to be honest, you know, you, you mess it up, you know, God, you, you would, you would know about it, but say, uh, it, it's really good that, you know, the, the, the Reds have the support and the belief that I think they are the best in the world. And, uh, you know, we should be definitely proud of them. Who's yeah. number two then? That's what I was going to ask next. Who do you think? I mean, I've always been impressed with the Blue Angels just in terms of um, it's not a dynamic display and it's a while since I've seen them, but the how close they fly and how solid that formation appears to be, whether they were flying Skyhawks, F4s or F18s. Yeah, it's a, it's a different skill, I think. Yeah, you know, it's a real different skill set, and and I think you know my my personal view of the Blue Angels is yes, you know, pilot. I think it's very impressive to watch, but as a spectator, uh, whereas you know the Italian team, you know they've got typical Italian flamboyance, and I think you know that is a spectacular display. Sometimes, perhaps not as accurate, dare I say, or well, certainly not as the Blue Angels, but the the uh, the 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 dynamic element element of it, I think, is very good. So I, I think they're good too. Yeah, Dunk. When we were at Fairford, we saw. I think they were called the Black Knights. I think we were probably BBMFing at the time. Are they? And they were Czech or something? The Russian ones? No, no, they were they were Far East. I'm, I'm thinking oh, maybe Malaysia, or I'm not. I, I need to Google them. But they were good, and they, I'm sure that I think they were a nine ship, and they had a funky little. Hawk F, even a slightly more swept wing, you know, sort of Alpha Jet meets Hawk. But it was a good show. That it was very, very good display. Those boys did. Mm. Um, well, I, you know, we we I know you were asking right at the beginning of the podcast, uh, JB, what people have been up to. But one of the things I was, up to, which was to go and fly with the Reds. So um, I did that uh, week before last. And all the things we've just been speaking about. Whenever you go back to the team. The professionalism, the, uh, the, the you know the flair and flamboyance that um, that we spoke about and what they they bring to the display, uh, it just comes flooding back and it's uh, it, it's a real privilege to go back and fly with them and I I, uh, I flew back in the nine slot as well that um, that I used to to fly in and it was uh, it was just a fantastic uh, a fantastic privilege to go back and fly with the boys. Yeah. I'm not going to lie, Dunk, uh, but when I do ask you what have you been doing over the last few weeks and you get to mention flying with the Reds, maybe maybe, uh, maybe learn from that. I think you skipped it. You didn't ask me. I most certainly did ask you. In fact, no. We were, we do you know were, what? We uh, no, about, uh, no, JB, he, JB, he's tricked you into bickering. 
It was, it, do you know what? It was my mistake because I asked you a closed question. I said, "Have you been playing around with Texans?" So, maybe there's okay. maybe no, there's a tiny bit of blame on blame blame for both of us. We'll discuss it in the debrief. You don't hear that very often from JB, do you? My mistake. <laughs> Dunk, Dunk, I've got a question for you though. When you were with them, yeah, did you wear a very faded pink suit? <laughs> yeah, I dug mine out of the lot. Slightly too tight oh, around yeah. the wrong areas <laughs> as, you, as you waddled out to the aeroplane. Yeah, no, that's just your <laughs> that's just your warped mind with it, you know, conjuring up its mental images again. You still got your red suit? Um, I have one left, yeah, for um, yeah, special occasions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so parky black knights are from singapore oh yeah i've just googled as well now the team i we saw dunk with the black eagle I mean. they are yeah look google black eagles korean team and uh they you see, you'll see they got a cool little aircraft as well very good now th- hang on don't singapore have their own jets haven't they don't they make their own yeah, stuff they're flying F-16s, so they're flying, you know, genuine operational aircraft. I know, think like... Singapore do fly F-16s. I all... Oh, no, I'm thinking of Taiwan. I'm thinking, I'm, uh, that, that's what I'm thinking yeah. of. Uh... Two of the Black Eagles from Korea. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Always slightly obscure, Parky. Like oh, that. I like that. Is it... I like uh... that. I like that in a fighter pilot. What do they fly? I'm trying to work out what, what it is. It's almost, oh, it's, it's a T. It, it's a T fifty, which is I don't know what a T fifty is. Lockheed Martin T fifty, isn't that? I thought that was a derivative of, of like a Hawk, is it not? No. Are you absolutely sure? No, not Lockheed Martin. Yeah, T fifty. So there you go. That's that's what they fly, which is basically a US trainer. It 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 sort of looks like. No, US don't have those. Well, from... I thought it was a, an. Indigenous aircraft that they. Hang do, on, so but... I. What... This is out of a podcast. Hang on, hang on. going to win us awards this bit. Hang on. Okay. So the US, what do they use to train with? Goshawks, Hawks. Yeah, US Navy T forty fives, and uh, they. I think they still use T thirty sevens, T thirty eights, aren't they? Until they get into the new ones. Not T thirty sevens. They use Texans. <laughs> back back to Texans again. <laughs> and um, uh, and then uh, and they also use T thirty eight. So they're they're getting a cockpit. Uh, upgrade, or sorry, they've had a cockpit upgrade on T thirty eight, but that's what they use. Uh, is there a brand new trainer coming in as well? Didn't? Yeah, there uh, is. A, I can't remember what it is. There, Boeing gets selected. Can't remember. Yeah, I, the T fifty is built by Kai K A I. It's built in Korea, I think. Yeah, you're right. In association with Lockheed Martin, I've got to say. I think. I Google that afterwards. Yeah, it's a it's a nice looking jet, actually. Um, right, we did. If uh, we could probably roll on for a million years talking about the other boys' red stories, but uh, oh no, I did want to ask one thing. How was your flying test, Dunk, when you did it? Uh, so I did my flying test with Justin Hughes, and it went all right. So Justin Hughes was the exec, so the exec got to to do the the flying tests, and I then went when I was num and Bucky will have done the same thing because he was the exec, um, and then. Um, so it was a really cool thing to do, do the, the flying test with the boys, but hey, that's not enough. So uh, I'll try and stick to the uh, stick to. Um, so I'm going to do that again, JB, because it's... It... 
What's that? Tell me all what, about what, Justin what, Hughes what? then. Say again, mate. Tell me all, all, all about Justin Hughes then. Yeah, so what was the question again? Uh, your flying test. test. How was your flying test? Uh, well, you know, the flying test, I did my flying test with uh, Justin Hughes, who's the uh, exec at the time. So the, the way it would work is that all kids on the shortlist would do a flying test. And uh, I'd say, Parky, I, I don't know if you'll agree, but it was probably the the biggest deal of of the week, doing yeah. the flying test. It certainly felt it, didn't it? it yeah. Was, so... Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on <clears throat> and you you went to do something that you you know you really didn't be, or hadn't done before and um so yeah i did mine with justin and uh i remember just i think it went okay uh i, I just remember though getting to the top of one of the loops and feeling him push some rudder away from the other aircraft so clearly i was getting a little bit too close for his comfort maybe and it's difficult so you know i was the exec parky was the exec as well uh, before me so we got to go and do those flying tests too and it you know you're you know you don't know these guys particularly well you know clearly they've got a, a, an above av- average recommend to come to the reds in the first place but you've then got to go and do well two loops and two rolls um, with these guys uh, doing it for the first time, effectively. Uh, now, are you? Is your job there to be an outsider to audit what they're doing to make sure you know they're not too elite? If you like, they're, they're accountable. Um, sorry, are you still talking about flying tests? Yes. No, as the exact. No, you're, you're part of the team. You're there to see if they're going to have the skill set to do the job. Ah, right. I'm with you. Did, did you see? Did you see the one last JB? No, no, I, I've I've not seen it. I, I will talk about something else I've seen later, but no, I've I've not seen that. The one last night is worth a watch because I showed the guys or some of the guys, and you can see a real difference in them. And and I think, you know, I don't know whether the guys did, but it looks like a couple of the guys have maybe gone and couple, uh, gone and done a couple of hawk hours first. And then one of the guys, who's a typhoon guy, doesn't look like he's gotten a hawk since, uh, you know, for a while. How did he um, get extra hawk hours then? How would you do that? Uh, I don't know. Do they still find T1s at Valley? Uh, no, they don't fly them at Valley, but they do fly them at Leeming. Yeah. So you might go and ask if uh, if if you can get a back squadron, if you can just go and get in a get in the aeroplane, so at least you're a little bit more familiar with it. Crikey, that's a lot of taxpayers' money for. Uh... A bit more familiarity, no, really, isn't it? They're going up anyway. Yeah, it's just that there's a spare back seat, so you, you oh, wouldn't it's... just go right. Can I have a dedicated? That that wouldn't happen. But you might just you'd get to go and if there's a, there's a sortie going and it would have a back seat free, you just go and climb into that. Oh, I see. And then you can just fly for, uh, fly fly for a bit a little bit later on. Well, maybe sometimes you would and sometimes you wouldn't. You'd hope you might get the opportunity to do it, but um, it depends on the sortie. But even just actually just being a little bit more familiar with the aeroplane helps. Anything, every little helps, as Tesco says. Absolutely. Um, Okay, well, before we go, have we got any questions, Godders? Yes. Oh, wow. And I'm definitely going to read some of these out because I remembered about five minutes ago, but they've, uh, our people have come good. Um, and we've got some questions in there. So uh, there's one from Ian Savage. Um, heard the U.S. Navy, uh, the new U.S. Navy carrier Electric Catapult cannot launch aircraft with external wing tanks. Have you heard? And if so, why can't they? Ooh, Fascinating. There's a, there's a, there's That's a, a question from Godders to himself. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't heard that. Um, I know there's something. Yeah, it's called emails. The um, electronic magnetic. I can't think of why they system. couldn't. Can you? Um, 
I don't know, but it's a brand new system. It, it, it's like the old James Bond tray on a magnet. Um, and uh, so, testing it, if anything, you know, because you test it without external stores, then you'll test it with external stores. Well, it must so, be something uh, to do with the fact that it's car- they're carrying external fuel. Because otherwise, it would mean they can't carry external stores, which would be, well, insane. No, I, th- I think it's just probably little, you know, steps on the uh, on the program. But certainly when we were doing F35 yeah. trials on the ski ramp, uh, uh, the ski jump at Patuxent River, the first time you did it, the guys did it empty, then they'd start putting more fuel in it, then they'd start putting more weapons into it, then they put external weapons onto it. So you just, it's graduated test points. So if uh, if Ian has it, it's probably, uh, probably that sort of thing. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, this one's from Bren. Uh, Bren Fly Big Bird. Uh, here we go. We've been talking about this. Tonka retirement after 40 years service. Long serving because it was so good or because it was a case of make do? Oh, that's a that's a long question to answer, isn't it? That's a well, debate. All right. So so short answers then. What do you think, Doug? No, I think, you know, it was uh, it was what was required at the time, wasn't it? If you look back at to when it was designed and it Cold War uh cold war bomber um to to go in low and you know it had its terrain following radar which enabled it to go in any weather um particularly low you know did you did you do the hard ride um uh tier? yeah at all. the whole thing scared me i'd love to do that <laughs> i'd love to do it our brave air commodore again ladies yep. and gentlemen i don't uh, mind admitting and... it hashtag, hashtag me <laughs> and uh but uh, so, you know, I think uh, the, the, the short answer is I think it was designed for a job um, in a Cold War era and it uh, and it did that job very well. Mm. Yeah, it, it, I think annoyingly Dunk's nailed it, really. You know, and after that, <laughs> I think the, um, the RF are very good at, at you know, an old bit of kit, really, which is what it was, and, you know, the updates that they put on it. You know, the airframe was always pretty limited. And, you know, after... Probably, you know, getting to the 90s, you know, there were far more bits of uh, far more agile aircraft, um, you know, operating. But it, it did its job. And, you know, the, with the kit that they put on it and the um, and the way it could, you know, drop precision weapons just kept it kept it um, useful, you know, for 28 years operational flying. you got to salute it for that. But, um, yeah, updates and, and how the RAF of of maintaining that aircraft is a, you know, it's pretty impressive. Do you think yeah, it's a... I, I, Sorry, go on. I was going to say, uh, I was going to say exactly what Parky said there. You know, it, the the ability to keep reinventing yourself to stay relevant has been key in that aeroplane. Yeah. Um, you, you know, just brilliant the way that they've done it. Do you think there's an element as well as, uh, as well, which is airframes, uh, well, as, as a technology, are pretty, pretty mature now. So, I mean, if you've got a good airframe, it's the avionics which you continually need to upgrade rather than the actual airframe itself, which is going to be pretty pretty steady. I mean, if you look at the stuff we're bringing in now, those airframes are going to be in service for many, many years, but the internals will be completely different by, by the time that they finally return. Yeah, I guess all jets need to be, you know, either midlife update or, you know, just have be able to have that update you know that obviously is the key to it. i mean the f-16 to my mind is just ridiculous how you know to, anyway but just the the updates and how that aircraft transformed you know from the early ones to was it the block 50 you you flew goddess and that was a while ago even now it would be far yeah that's 20 years ago yeah, yeah. It's, to the from the cjs to the cms and the different it's all about the different types of weapons that keep relevant so goddess have we got another question yeah, here's a good one from uh, from Chris W. 
at Seawalton7. Okay. Uh, what? Um, let's try and get short answers on this one, but it's. I think it's a good one. What did the chap see as the best display aircraft from RAF service over the past 100 years? Wow. Dunk, go. Best display aircraft, flipping heck. Um... So past 100 years, I guess that you, we don't have to have seen it ourselves here. So this is sort of YouTube or Pate film or whatever it happens to be. What are you thinking, JB? You go first. Well, do you know the, a lot of these things on on YouTube. Uh, the the aircraft I would love to I'd love to see fly more more than any other actually would be the Lightning. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm with you. The original Lightning. Yeah, full. Uh, you know, just as fast as it could possibly go. Uh, and I've got one more. It would be um, oh Dunk, who wrote Cypher Merlin. Oh, it was um, uh, Henshaw. Yeah, yeah, Alex Henshaw. Alex Henshaw. So I would have loved to have seen Alex Shaw's display at the Castle Bromwich factory yeah, yeah. when he takes jets out, uh, jets when he take the aeroplanes out of there. Um, there is, if you Google it, there is YouTube YouTube footage. There is footage, old footage of doing it fire display. But apparently, that was one of the most amazing things that you'd uh, that you could see. Wow! I have to say that the Vulcan, yes, uh, definitely up there, isn't it? You know, the um, that that is an amazing aeroplane. I think, you know, to me, so you say about the lightning, and I, and I get that, but um, it, I'm not sure that the display itself, I think the aeroplane, amazing brute power, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm not sure the display itself kind of did that brute power justice because it just sort of went too far from the from the crowd. And, it, you know, it could do the, uh, the high-speed pass pretty well. But, uh, you know, to see a, a Vulcan and see that size of aeroplane, uh, maneuver as it does, I think um, I think that beats it, and it, I, it's uh, it's st- it was amazing to see. It was um, you know when we, it was great that the Vulcan to the Sky project came back, and you know it was very privileged to uh, on my last trip actually with uh, with BBMF we did a um, a formation that had quite a few fighters, and then we had the Vulcan as well, um, and and flying line astern to the Vulcan, and, wow, uh, and watching it was just uh, just you- incredible. Did you have to do some observation on the Vulcan? Have I got that wrong? Yeah, yeah you got that wrong. That. Yeah, when, yeah. Uh, when Dunk saved to the Vulcan. All by yes, that's right, yeah. I saved he landed Wing walking, I heard. Collapsed to undercarriage. And, <laughs> Is that uh, story again? Exactly. Do you know what? I, I, I would give you the Vulcan. Uh, being selfish, I'd like to see all three beams together. That, 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 that would be a phenomenal display. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. Arco, any, uh, any updates? I mean, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put I this one out on Twitter. Seeing, it's seeing certain aircraft fly or how well they display. And that, that to me, the actual display aircraft, the agility, you know, obviously you saw the F-22 Ooh. a couple of years ago at, uh, at uh, Riyadh was pretty impressive. I'd love you know, to see the, that. The thrust vectored. Do you remember we saw it in, um, the first time we saw it, Dunk, I think was in Lankawi. We saw the, uh, yeah. the, the vectored flanker. And yeah. just some of the stuff, you know, we, I, I just remember probably watching it with Dunk just going, that is mental what yeah. that thing is doing. It yeah. just, that you is shouldn't be allowed to. Aerodynamic yeah. laws, you know. But, the, but the, you've, the, you've cheated there because that's not from RAF service, which was part oh, of the question. RAF service would almost go, you know, just watching the Typhoon now, you know, you gave me all the fast jets. You know, it's a cracking show. I never get bored of watching it. I always go and have a, have a oh, I must admit. 
little tear comes to the eye. I'll, I'll put this out on Twitter and see what everyone thinks about their own. And uh, we'll we'll have a quick natter about that one next time. Um, time for one more? Yes, absolutely. Um, right, this is Kev at Kev1701E. I wonder if that means something. Um, after a recent visit to RF Scampton in minus temperatures, have any of you had a mishap on an icy runway? Mm. Good question. No. <laughs> well, I have. I, don't do you remember operating out of uh, Bardafoss on the icy runway? No, you I you see. That's why I, I could say no quite clearly because I never got to go to Bardafoss. I, th- I think we've talked about this before, but um, what, where I is this have place? A uh, it's, so it's in northern Norway, near Tromsø. Ah, so you're inside okay. the Arctic Circle. Absolute belt detachment. We were there. Um, I mean, you, you know, you could do a whole episode on on just this place itself. It had a a slope. I'd be very quiet. <laughs> I had a slope approaching um, one of the. I think it was the easterly runway. That was a seven degree slope. So you had to in a hurry. You had to do a seven degree vertical landing. And uh, I think it was Johnny Earl Dunk who, and on ice, you landed at, uh, what was a normal RVL, 50 knots? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was 60 knots on ice because with the nozzles pointed down, it was enough speed that you didn't get any ice come up into the intake and, and cause damage to the engine. Ooh, yeah. And and Johnny landed right on the, the beginning of the runway at only 60, 60 knots, you know, 70-odd miles an hour but still almost slid off the far end of the runway because it was just sheet snow and ice. You know, they don't bother clearing it up. The Jag used to use its, uh, when the Jag would land, they would, they'd use its uh, brake parachute. But then when you taxied off, I remember taxiing off on one particular day, there was a slight incline downwards as you taxied off the runway. And I was just fully out of control in this Harrier skidding sideways. Um, you, you would go, um, you'd, put the throttle slightly through the high pressure gate and just turn the engine down as far as it would go without shutting the engine down. And you would also use the nozzles and point them forward if you thought you were going to lose control. So you had a bit of braking and you also had a bit of real um, to give you some directional control. And I remember I just about got control of this thing, got round to the hardened aircraft shelter where I was parked and the ground crew started marshalling me around. And as I turned, the thing just slid sideways towards the uh the shelter and i thought oh i'm just gonna, i'm gonna ram one of these big concrete shelters from the side but the thing caught again and i got around the corner and shut it down but flipping heck you know why the you did you train there, there? The time. Well, what was the point of the detachment well for exactly that reason at the time so this was mid 90s i mean you know post 192 but um it, there was still a buffer zone between the north of norway and russia so we'd be flying right up to a few miles away from the Russian border at the top. And genuinely one of the most amazing detachments I've ever done. I love the Empire Strikes Back. Flying <laughs> low level over Norway. It was like you were in a snow speeder. Yeah, you bet. Uh, did you have the cool white and green camo, which they put on the GR3s? Uh, we didn't at that time. Um, they used to put them, they put on the GR5s. I think they went back to them again at one point after I'd left the jet as well. It's a great um, scheme, that. We went to Norway a couple of times, and uh, yeah, I learned about icy runways and taxiways from that. Yeah, it reminds me of the. I, um... I might have accidentally done a 360 once in an F16 taxiing out at Leerwarden in Holland, where we operated from. I can remember just going, it was just before the runway. Uh, I was, my 
I think it was just the two F-16s and my leader was coming out of a, a, a hardened shelter just by the edge of the runway. And as I kind of came around the corner, I must have just touched the brakes. It's very skitty, the little F-16. And exactly as God has said, I just had this feeling as I went around the corner, like, oh, no, I've lost it. And in slow motion, it did a complete right hand 360 as my leader came out of his shelter and looked at me as I did this beautiful pirouette and then sort of slid, not really close to him, but just kind of up where I probably should have parked anyway. And he sort of on the VHF radio went, whoa, are you all right? And, it, and I could see that, you know, it was just so slow on the ice and no damage had been done. It was like, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'm okay. And then we took off. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Sort of the, the whole transit to the airspace thinking, that was a bit weird. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Well, I think we will leave it there. That was a very, very good place to end it. Oh, actually, no, it is. Although, actually, I have got. It's not a question, but I think we do have to mention this um, from uh, Arles G. Uh, not a question per se, but how about a shout out to the guy who just made six thousand hours on Tonkers on the last sortie? Do you think he rounded up? Um, is anything like Parky he did <laughs> apparently he got, I was talking to one of the guys at work today and uh, apparently uh, Strader's there got his it was, he ticked over 6,000 as they were over the Alps on the way back from Cyprus there um, so finishing the way we started with a big salute 6,000 hours aircraft type uh, unbelievable that well, is quite yeah, some well, achievement isn't it yeah it is um, hey I'm afraid you know it's standard fashion I, I've got to give a shout out as well I've got I mean, it's not on the, to the same extent as Strats with the 6,000 hours, but uh, I've got a shout out to all the boys uh, that make up the uh, the gliding school at some because uh, uh, they listen to the podcast. Oh, do as, they? As it turns out, who knew? Uh, and um, Gary Weber, who um, who flies there, very kindly sent me solo in a uh, in a glider a couple you of weeks ago. You went solo? I mean, they let me on my own. Oh my it, God. See, JB, yet another thing. Fly. So he's flown with the Reds, he flew a glider solo. He forgot to mention this at the beginning of the flow yeah. Uh, program. Yeah, he didn't want to talk about Texans, though. Didn't um, get a chance. Unbelievable. Didn't get a chance. You, you I couldn't get down. Talking about that snuff movie, you threw him, you see. <laughs> <laughs> He's very sensitive, actually. I am. I'm a very sensitive individual. Uh, you're not going to tell me that you had a quick go on an F-22 ne- uh, next week, are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, and they went on the space shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think much of it. Nice. Um, oh, yeah. Well, uh, that again is a great shout out. In fact, as I'm as we are doing this, uh, I've you know rounding up some business. I actually have something, and you boys are going to hate this. You're going to think it's really naff, but I don't really care. Um, for Christmas, my wife bought me two books. She's bought me, um, I think it uh, first lights. And she's also bought me, uh, oh, I can't remember if it's uh, Tumulate in the Skies or another one. But uh, anyway, two books which we've spoke about on, on the podcast, but I've already read. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you boys to, to, to sign them, and I'm going to give them away to a listener. So if you listen to this, you've got always to the end and you retweet it, we will send you a pair of books. Wow, that's, um, that, that's very cool. Both of those books are great. I just finished Tumult in the, in the Skies as well. It's good, great. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good. Really well, good. What did you think of uh, First Light, JB? I loved it. I loved it. I think I thought... So the the first book I read was... Oh, I feel bad for not remembering his name now. The guy... 100 Aircraft. 
Oh, Eric uh, Winkle Brown. Yeah. Wings on my sleeve. Which was great, but to be honest, it's a it's a hundred paid book and he's done something like four hundred aircraft. So you can't possibly go into detail everything that he's ever done. So it's a very brief book. I thought First Light was just superbly written. Yeah. I mean it's it's just it's such a great balance of actually what it is like to fly in a fighter squadron, but beautifully presented too. So I, I loved it. Yeah. 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 Well, so that's a good idea. So what do the list to do? What do they need to retweet? Just re. What we'll do is we'll put put this podcast up, um, and if you see the link, just simply retweet it. That's all you need to do. What, what a good idea! And we'll sign it when we get together at our next adventure, which could be somewhere near a hybrid air vehicle or somewhere or, else. or a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Pretending to be on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> yeah. So we we will we will retweet. We'll send you some books at some point. That's a good idea. I like that. Well done. Marvellous. Marvellous. Excellent. Right. Uh, I guess I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We're flying a big balloon. Yeah. So if you enjoyed what um, what you heard, please tell a friend, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever you do. Uh, and also you can follow us on uh, on Twitter where you will need to be retweeting us. But until next week, from me, Godders, Dunk and Parky, uh, we will see you then. So goodbye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.